I remember when we were first deciding to move overseas, we had a meeting with each of our four kids who were little at the time. Like I think our youngest was one year old and uh, one of the phrases that came out in the family meeting was, we do hard things. So we're saying we are in a war-torn African country. Uh, we're being uh, ambiguous about the name of the country because there's very high persecution. And so the norm here is to kidnap, beat, and kill uh, Christians. So it's a uh, very serious thing. Regular prayer that we pray in the car as we leave in the morning is thank you God for one more day in this city because we never know when the last day will be. Why are we doing what we're doing? When I was a teenager, Bruce McAvoy was the youth pastor at Chapel Street and Jeff Frazier was the new senior high pastor at Chapel Street. There was just a deep conviction of who God is, who He is to me, and that I'm ready to go to the ends of the earth to do anything that He calls me to do. Our decision to move to this part of Africa was a statistical decision. There's dozens of unengaged people groups that no one was going to because of the persecution. Factions in this country are fighting uh, with each other. More than half a million people uh, have been internally displaced and, and have left their homes. There hasn't been good education in this country for a decade. Yeah, pe people fear for their safety. I, I remember I was, I was in a car uh, with a friend. He was new to this country and he had said, so Doug, what is the message that you think people most need to hear. And I thought about it for a while. Hope. Raise up beneath the shade of the Georgia pine. That's home, you know. Sweet tea, pecan pine, oh may wine. Where the fishes grow. And my house is not much to talk about. The title, Hope School, was actually the idea of a Muslim business guy in the community who saw that we were doing Hope Camps, Hope Clubs, and parent trainings to teach resiliency skills for families. And he said, Doug, you have Hope Camps, you have Hope Clubs, you should have Hope School. He said, I have an 86,000 square foot facility that you can use rent-free this message of hope is what our community needs. We started Hope School this past September with 120 students, which by October was 180 students. We have about 20% of the building set up with classrooms. About 80% of the building still needs development. There's so much that can be done, but like we don't have kitchens, we don't have refrigerators or microwaves, like there's, so there's certain pieces, there's not things for the kids to play with at recess. The mission is we want to bring hope 
and healing to traumatized families. And ultimately, we want them to develop a relationship with Jesus and follow Jesus. We believe each child has a unique God-given identity and special calling. We teach through different character traits and each of those character traits line up with the fruit of the Spirit. Education so lines up with the Christian worldview that we can ask whatever question we want, uh, we can share whatever doubt we want, and that the answers will line up with our faith. And we believe if in this culture we develop a generation that learns to think critically, this is going to cause a seismic shift in how they approach who God is. As we do hard things, we kind of feel weak, but in that, God shows himself to be strong. And in doing hard things, we have experienced way more joy, way more of a sense of who God is and connection with him. This has been our hardest year ever. It's also been our most fulfilling, joyous year of significance. Daddy sang bass, Mama sang tenor, me and little brother joined right in. Singing seems to help a troubled soul. One of these days and it won't be long, always join the song. I'm going to join the family circle at the throne. No, the circle won't be Well, I just want to say hi to all of our campuses. And, you know, after watching that video, I hope your heart, like my heart, is so gripped by people answering the call of, of God to serve him around the globe. And we're excited to bring to you more of their story, to tell you more about what God is doing through Doug and Carrie uh, and, and how he's using them in remarkable ways, how his spirit is moving in their life and through their relationships. What struck me about that last video was when they were talking about how every day they thank God for one more day to serve him. I thought, what a lesson for me. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving a few days ago. Every day is a day to thank God for one more day to serve him wherever he's placed you. Whether that's right here in the Tri-Cities or somewhere in Africa, it's a day to serve the Lord. It's a day that he has made, and it's a day that we can give him thanks uh, and be grateful. So, uh, again, I want to say thank you to those of you who support the mission of God here at Chapel Street. And should he move in your heart to give, all you have to do is indicate serve the world and our resources in giving this Advent season will go to support the mission that God has given Doug and Carrie uh, in Africa. So let's pray together as we jump into the sermon. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this day, a day you've made, a day we gather together to worship you, a day to serve you. A day we take for granted, but we don't want to in this moment as we come together to your word to be reminded who you are. You are the king and who we are. We are your people. We are the flock of your hand, the sheep under your care. We want to be obedient to you. We want to understand who you've created us to be. We want to know you through your word. And so teach us. We're praying now in Jesus name. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, meaning arrival. And traditionally, this marks the beginning of the Christian calendar where historically and throughout the world today, Christians celebrate the season of Advent, where we look back to the first arrival of Jesus in the manger, the nativity, and we look forward to the second arrival of Jesus, his coming in glory. 
And we, as his followers, live between the two advents, his first and second arrival. And that's a unique time in history to live. We look back in certainty of what he's done, in awe of who he is and what he's done, and in the hope of what he will do. And so that's kind of how we live our lives, looking back and looking forward uh, with, to give us confidence in the present moment to follow Jesus as our king. Historically, Advent's a season of, of preparation where Christians have prepared themselves by slowing down in this, these four weeks, reflecting on the word of God, thinking deeply about who he is as our king and our Messiah. And we're going to do that in a series. This week and the next three weeks leading up to Christmas Day, we're going to be in a series um, where we're going to prepare ourselves by focusing specifically on the role of the Holy Spirit in Christmas. We're calling this series the Spirit of Christmas. Now, you might hear that phrase, the Spirit of Christmas, and we think culturally like, you know, getting in the Christmas spirit, uh, nostalgia, traditions, feeling joyful and jolly, whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christmas. The Spirit working behind the scenes in the story of Christmas. Sort of the unsung hero, if you will, of the Christmas narrative. And we're going to be exploring that as we go. The, the, the lesser known person. Uh, because the Christmas story does not begin uh, in Bethlehem. Does not begin in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1. It begins far before that, way back in the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis, actually. We're going to start in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, looking at the story of the Christmas story and its context in which the Spirit was moving long before Jesus came onto the scene in the flesh. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That's a, it's an incredible passage, and we barely have time to scratch the surface of all that's included in there. But a little background here. Isaiah the prophet wrote, lived and wrote in his prophetic ministry about 700 years before Jesus. He lived in a time of the divided kingdom. Now, if you know Old Testament history, Israel as a nation was divided into a northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom had been taken away in Babylonian captivity. The Syrian army had marched and conquered them. And the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was, was being threatened by the Assyrians in the north. This is the time of Isaiah. He, his life, his ministry spanned almost 60 years, 
four different kings, their reigns in, in Judah. And they were really not great kings, to say the least. The, it's, a, it's a desperate, insecure, and bleak time in the history of the people of God. Isaiah's mission is to get the people of God to fully trust him and obey him, despite the threat of Assyria in the north. The temptation was for them to put their trust in Egypt, who might come to their rescue. And Isaiah was repeatedly saying, don't trust in kings of the earth, of, of Egypt and its princes. Trust in the Lord your God. And, not surprisingly, God's people struggle to obey that. They don't fully trust him, and it ends up badly for them. Isaiah chapter 10, right before the passage we just read, is, is God pronouncing judgment on his own people and on the nation of Assyria. God, it's interesting, God is going to use the Assyrian Empire as an instrument of judgment on Judah, his people. But he's also going to judge Assyria, because they're wicked as well. He's got a sovereign over nations, his own people and the nations of the earth. Listen to how chapter 10 closes in verses 33 through 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in the height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Okay, there's some imagery here that's powerful. The, the prophet is using the image of great, powerful forests, massive tall trees being hewn down. The tall and proud and mighty imagery of a tree is going to be cut down by God in judgment. And there's, this image means that the, these forests of great trees, the arrogance of these nations, God's own people and the Assyrians, is going to be reduced to desolate stumps. Maybe you've seen apocalyptic movies where there's this, uh, the, the end of the world and the, the, the entire landscapes are reduced to rubble. It looks something like this in my mind. The, the great towering trees reduced to stumps. If you've ever been out west and seen the great sequoias and redwoods, can you imagine them all just gone? It's a tragic, terrifying imagery. That's the image of what's coming and what's happening, this desolate landscape of stumps, of judgment. And I want to begin by talking about, because I think Isaiah does, the story of the stump. You'll notice we've got a giant stump right here uh, as an image that we're going to use throughout. The story of the stump. God says, your pride and arrogance and wickedness and resistance, resistance of me is going to result in you being cut down and reduced to what appear to be dead stumps where there's no life anymore. You see this strange imagery from the Old Testament uh, thousands of years ago. Actually, there are, in the Bible, there are lots of stories of trees. Trees are used as a powerful image throughout the story of the, of the in fact, right in the garden, right? There's two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life uh, from the very beginning. And then we, throughout the story, we see these trees that pop up. We see the, the tree of the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter eight, olive trees and fruit trees and, uh, that are gonna blossom and flourish and fig trees that are symbols of God, the fruitfulness that God's gonna bless his people with. In Psalm 1, he says that we are to be like trees planted by streams of water, which yields our fruit in season. In fact, the imagery of a tree is an image God uses for the nation of Israel itself, that his people are to be a great tree of blessing for the nations, for the whole world, that God's blessing and the fruitfulness of their life and obedience to him, according to his word, would be a demonstration to the world of what, what he intends for a human flourishing, how he intends us to live. It goes on, we see the oaks of righteousness in Isaiah chapter 61, and all the way down to Revelation. At the end of the story, we are back in a garden, and there's a river of life, 
and the tree of life once again. You could say we live kind of between the trees, as it were. But in Isaiah, the trees have been cut down, reduced to stumps. God's people were meant to be a great tree. I love this image here of this great oak tree. Massive branches, beautiful flowering leaves, meant to be a place where people could find shelter and shade and blessing. But they blew it. We blew it. We did not live according to how God intended us to live. Every great story, every great uh, movie, a story that you read, mythology and human history have these similar elements, right? They, they have a, a description of how things are meant to be, how they should have been. Then they have something tragic that happens and how it all went wrong, what caused uh, the, the great uh, tragedy. And then they have a surprising turn about how things are going to be restored. A surprising, unlikely hero, a surprising turn for the good. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien coined a phrase called the U catastrophe, E-U meaning good, catastrophe, the good catastrophe. What they mean by this is the surprising and sudden turn for the good that nobody saw coming. Great stories have this, and the gospel is the greatest story. We know how things are meant to be. We're supposed to be flourishing and fruitful because we're obedient to a God who loves us and made us, but we blew it. And we, because of our own sin, are reduced to dead stumps. But God does not leave us there. He doesn't end the story there. So the dead stump at the end of chapter 10 is an image of how things went wrong for Israel and, and by inference, for us as well. Look at verse 1, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. So remember, field of dead stumps, this dead stump here. What can come from a dead stump? Isaiah tells us. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isn't that amazing? Chapter 10 ends with this desolation, everything cut down and reduced to to dead stumps. But it's not the end of the story. There shall come forth a shoot, a living branch out of this dead stump. Well, who can bring living branches out of dead things? The Spirit of God can. The power of God can. This brings us to the hope of the branch. The story really is about the hope of the branch. God's people and the history of God's blessing in the world is reduced to dead stumps, but God's not done. He brings an unlikely hero. Um, The metaphor here is of a shoot, a branch coming off of something dead, something new, live, growing. You've ever tried to remove a stump from your yard? It's hard, isn't it? It's not easy. They're stubborn. Their roots go down deep. And sometimes what looks dead on the surface, there's life underneath that you don't see. That's kind of what's happening here. There's life growing out of this seemingly dead stump that God is going to restore and bring something new. We're told that this stump is uh, is the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David, Israel's greatest king. But even Israel's greatest king, David, blew it, sinned, uh, failed to live up to the covenant uh, faithfulness and obedience to, to his God. And so have we. So it's been 600 years since David's authority and royal line has flourished. It really does look like a dead stump. There's not much growing there. The northern kingdom is gone. The southern kingdom is barely holding on. And judgment is coming for the nation of Assyria. And it looks like all is going to be reduced. But God is not done. Isaiah verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. And I want you to notice what, the, 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 what God tells us here, the impact of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord, the key point here is the Lord. This is not just, this is not a false spirit, it's not any spirit, it's the Spirit of the Lord, it's the Holy Spirit himself. And the Spirit of wisdom 
and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit on the Messiah. And if you walk through each of these, it's fascinating. There's the Spirit of the Lord, meaning this is the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity will rest upon Jesus. Now, the Spirit comes in the Old Testament on people at certain times for certain reasons. The Spirit fills those of us in the New Testament that are believers in Jesus. But this is a different thing. The Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Remember the story of Jesus coming out of the Jordan River when he's baptized. The Spirit appears in the form of a dove above him. The voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What Isaiah is telling us here. 700 years before Jesus, is that the Spirit of God will rest on the Son of God in a powerful way. And then he describes that way. The Spirit of wisdom. This is interesting. The wisdom of, the, of God looks like foolishness to the world sometimes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us this. Paul says, God chose the weak things, the foolish things, to shame the strong and the wise. Meaning, God's methods, God's plans, don't always make sense to the world because they're based on divine wisdom. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding. Over and over again, you read through the gospel accounts, and Jesus has a level of understanding and wisdom that's beyond anyone's comprehension. And then we're told it's the spirit of counsel. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us that he is the wonderful counselor, meaning we can trust the counsel of God because of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then we're told it's the spirit of might. We're also told in Isaiah chapter 9 that Messiah will be the mighty God. So his, his, the Spirit of the Lord rests on him. He has wisdom and understanding and counsel and power. So not only does he know what to do, he has the power to do it. He can accomplish it. Then we're told he has the spirit of knowledge. You might, what's the difference between knowledge and understanding? It's simply another way of saying that all things are known to him. Nothing's hidden from him. He knows all things. He sees all things. All things are laid bare before him. He doesn't have to figure it out or, or follow the clues. It's, it's known to him in an instant. Your thoughts are known to him before you speak them, if you speak them. He knows the secret things in our hearts. Everything is open to him. And then the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Fear not meaning afraid of, but awe and wonder. There's a sense of awe and wonder and majesty and power in this person because the Spirit rests on him. Seven, by the way, these seven characteristics is the number of fullness and completion. So we're given a picture of the fullness and completion of this person who is the branch out of this dead stump from the line of Jesse. These seven marks. And we know who this is. What this means is the, the branch from the stump of Jesse is not like a little hint of life. It's full of life, full of the Spirit of life, because the Spirit gives life. And then Isaiah goes on and describes in verses 3 through 5 what exactly this, this new branch will do, how, what it will accomplish. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness, there it is, that word again shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is, a, this is a remarkable description here. We're told that Isaiah goes on and says, his judgments will not be based on what he sees or what he hears. That's how we base our judgments. Evidence, right? Well, I, I, I've observed this, I've heard this, I've read this, and I'm putting the pieces together, and I think this is the best, I think this is accurate, this is true. 
But I think we've, one of the things we've learned over the last recent years is it's hard to know what you can trust. Even those things you see and hear can be manipulated or twisted. It's so easy to be deceived or distracted today. I am and so are you in many, many ways. What we're being told here is this branch, this Messiah, will not rely on external evidence or verbal testimony. He just will know because he is righteousness. And that word, righteousness, is the, Greek, is the Hebrew word, sedek. It means rightness. It's in him. He doesn't need some testimony from outside of him because he knows. In John chapter 2, verse 25, we're told that he, Jesus, did not need anyone to testify to him about what was inside a person because he, know, he knew what was in, in a man, the thoughts of a man or all mankind. He just knows because of who he is. The spirit of wisdom, as I said, is nothing like the wisdom of the world. And if you think about the Christmas story, you know, the, the great story that we're, we're celebrating in these next weeks, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, I, I, I've, in church leadership, we will often uh, spend time thinking about, well, what's the, what, where is God leading us? And we'll write down things on a board, and businesses do this, and organizations do the same thing on a board about where we think we're headed, what God wants, and we describe the vision, the end. And then we back up from there and say, okay, what are we going to do? What's it going to take to get there? Well, think about this for a minute. What if uh, that's how God approached uh, the, the story of Christmas? Okay, 2,000 years from now, everyone's go- you want everyone to know your name, right? That's your goal, your life goal. 2,000 years from now, everyone will know your name. Be on their lips. They all know it. And not only that, but uh, a quarter of the world's population will profess to follow you. One quarter of the seven and a half billion people on the planet will say they follow you. Not only that, but your teachings, your life's work will become uh, the basis of of human civilizations and the most uh, well-known and foundational work in all of human history. That's a pretty lofty goal for your life. How would you get there? How would you start? What would be the way you do it? What if I told you, okay, here's how we're going to accomplish that. You're going to be born in obscurity and poverty. You're going to live most of your adult life far from the centers of economic, political, and social power. And just when you're starting to hit your stride in, in, in your career, you're going to die shamefully. <laughs> you, it's ridiculous. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But that's the point. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. It does not make sense to the world. It shames the wisdom of the world. It's wiser than man's, the foolishness of God, Paul says, is wiser than man's wisdom. And that's what we see here in this passage. Because, friends, the world will always look at the Christian gospel as foolishness. Scratch its head, mock it even, turn its, its nose up, up its nose or even turn away from it. But the branch is growing and bearing fruit, even still, because it's based on the wisdom and power of God. And the Spirit of God. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. He goes on. This description gets even more vivid and compelling. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, you read that line, you think, well, that's not good for the lamb. It might be good for the wolf, but that's not going to go well. The leopard lie down with a young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall leave them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw with the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
This is such an incredible picture Isaiah gives us here. A moment ago, we, we, we had a chance to dedicate children. Beautiful families, wonderful kids. We pray for them. We want to see them grow. We want to see them flourish, protected physically, spiritually, and grow strong. Which of you moms and dads would take your little child and let them play over a cobra's den? I like to watch uh, YouTube videos of animals attacking. <laughs> Maybe you've seen these, you know. They're funny and they're kind of disturbing. I, I once saw a video where uh, it was in Yellowstone National Park and there was this massive male bison walking up the road and these people pulled over and got out of their cars and the, and the, and the buffalo got up angry and, and rammed a car and knocked it right off the road. The power in, these, in, in wild animals is not something to be messed with. King cobras are huge and terrifying creatures, at least to me anyway. And I, who would let their child play near one? That foolishness, it's crazy. None, none of these images, lions with goats, leopards with lambs, wolves, they, they, don't, they don't go together. It's, it doesn't make sense. But that's precisely the point. That which seems like it just can't, is impossible, dangerous, foolish, God will reconcile in a way that is beyond our comprehension. He's going to bring things together in a, in a kind of shalom wholeness and unity that all creation longs for. In fact, Romans chapter 8 talks about this. Romans chapter 8 says that all creation is groaning to be set right because it's, it was set wrong. Remember, that's the story of the dead stump. Because of our sin and rebellion, something's wrong. The life that we're meant to live isn't there. And one day it will be. This is, this is what we're being told here. The meaning of verse 9. This will only happen when the knowledge, the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'll ask you, is the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord today? I mean, you can go certain places and people know a little bit about God. They might have an opinion about Jesus and the Gospels. But that's not what this is saying. When the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, then all that which terrifies us and makes us insecure and seems dangerous to us, that'll all be gone. That which is, there's enmity and strife and conflict will be wiped away. There'll be harmony and peace and unity when the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what's coming. It isn't here yet, but that's what's coming. That's what we're being told will happen through this, this, the hope of the branch. In fact, one of the places that I love that describes this best in my mind, is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll know that Aslan is the Christ figure, the lion. And there's the poem that gets recited by the creatures of Narnia when they hear that Aslan is on the move. Mr. Beaver, I think, cites the prophecy first, and here's what he says. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When the, he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. That's the, the prophecy over Narnia. What is Lewis doing? He's echoing these prophecies from Isaiah, the Old Testament prophecies about what will happen when the Messiah comes, when he comes in glory, all things set right. This longing we have for that. This brings us last to the identity of the king. The identity of this king. Now you and I know, because it's Christmas time, you know the hero of the story, the Christmas story is Jesus. But you have to read this as if you don't know this yet. There's a slow reveal here. It's kind of like the Old Testament prophets are giving you a composite sketch. Remember like police sketches? Uh, I don't know if they do this anymore. Now they probably have computers. But in the old days, right, the, the witness would describe the, the person they're looking for. 
the person of interest, and the, the, the artist would sketch them out, and so slowly you'd get a composite sketch that would come into view. When you read the Old Testament prophecies, you're getting this composite sketch of the Messiah slowly coming into view about who he is and what he's like. And then you come to the New Testament, and you go, oh, those 350-plus prophecies of the Old Testament, I see them now. They all point, they're exactly like him. I see the likeness. That's what we're meant to discover here, the identity of the king. One more quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a, there's a moment when the children, the Pevensey children, Edmund and Peter and Lucy and Susan, they hear the name Aslan mentioned for the first time. Though they've never met him, don't know anything about him. Here's what Lewis writes. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment Mr. Beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had been had enormous meaning to you, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or a lovely meaning, too beautiful to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing that you could get back into the dream again. It's like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. I think in a way, Isaiah's writing in a way that he wants the people of God to feel something jump inside when you read these words. Ah, it looks like it's all dead, like a dead stump, but a shoot will come from the branch of Jesse, a root uh, out of that stump, which will grow and flourish and bring healing and hope. It's the story of a king that's going to come, right? And this longing is deep down inside of every one of us. You read through the great Norse mythology, pagan stories, and the great stories, they they all have this hope of a hero, a king, someone who will come again. This is why Tolkien named the last book in 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 the trilogy, The Return of the King. This hope of someday a leader and a ruler will come and set everything right. And you know, every election cycle in our country and other countries, human politicians and leaders play off this longing, this hope for somebody to get it right. And they never do. They never have. Caesar hasn't. The kings of England haven't. The kings throughout the earth and and, and the rulers and and the czars and the kings and the presidents, uh, they've never gotten it right. But there will come one who will. He's not like that. This is the remarkable part of the identity. We long for someone one day. Because the story of the gospel is that our fundamental problem is not political. It's not economic. It's not educational or institutional or philosophical in any of those ways. It is fundamentally relational. What's happened to us that's reduced us to feeling like dead stumps is that we are separated from the relationship we're meant to have from God. This is the story of Israel. They're cut off from the God who made them. And so are you and so am I apart from our king. So the solution then is also a relational solution. If our problem is relational, the solution is We don't need a new educational system or a new political system or a new social order. We need a return to the king who has come and will come again. Who is this king? We get a couple of powerful clues in in the first and last verse we read a moment ago from Isaiah 11. Look at verse 1 and verse 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
Now, maybe it's not obvious to you, but I want to ask a question. How can somebody be both the shoot and the root? Doesn't that strike you as odd? Wait, wait. The shoot comes off of the stump. The root is what produces the stump. How can a person be both the branch and the source? How can they be both a descendant of someone and the source of that person at the same time? It doesn't make sense. These, it's like he's mixing up his metaphors here. No, he's not. He's giving you a clue to the identity of this king. Jesus, the God-man, who is from the earthly line of Jesse and King David through Mary, his mother, and is also the source of King David himself because he's before all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He is the firstborn of all creation, Colossians tells us. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man. The Creator God, who is the root of us all, comes into the world as a tender shoot, as a tiny branch. Isn't that, it's, as I said, the wisdom of God is, it confounds, it astounds, it, it's an affront to the wisdom of the world. He came as a child, humble and meek. He will come again as a conquering king, full of power and might and glory. In fact, just to give you a little glimpse of the end of the story, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 15, puts it this way. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. There's a lot of images in that passage that are right out of Isaiah 11, verses 4 through 9. Same imagery. Faithfulness, righteousness, true, ruling, judging with true justice and righteousness. Remember, we live between these two Advents, friends, between his first coming and his second. And the Spirit of the Lord that rests on him also works in your heart and in mine to bring us to full confidence and assurance in this King, this branch, and this hope. To obey his word and giving us the courage to live as citizens of his kingdom. These ancient people of Isaiah's day, they're not really all that different, if you think about it, from you and from me. They're living in uncertain, fearful times. They're in desperate need of a word of hope. They're looking for someone to place their hope in. And many of them are looking in the wrong place, to a, to a nation like Egypt, to a political system. And Isaiah says, don't put your hope there. Put your hope in the branch that will come. This stump looks like it's dead, but don't be fooled. God is going to bring something alive out of it, something powerful out of it. Look, we'll close again by looking at the, this last portion from Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Maybe your life you feel a little bit like that desolate field of stumps. Maybe you feel like there's just not much life happening right now. Maybe you feel a little bit hopeless. 
take heart. This ancient prophecy from thousands of years ago is for you and for me who trust in Jesus. God is in the business of bringing life out of dead things, bringing dead things to life. What looks like a cut-off stump in your life, God can resurrect and bring new life from, and he's done it time and time and time again, and ultimately has done it and is doing it through his son Jesus, our Messiah, our true king, the righteous branch, Jeremiah calls him, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, who will judge the nations with equity and true justice, who will restore all things and bring healing, that which is impossible for us to do through any social or political or economic system, God can and will do through his son. And this is where we live. This is our story. I'm going to close by reading to you uh, the prayer which comes out of the, uh, the, the Anglican Church for the prayer of Advent, living between the Advents. Let's pray together. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came among us in great humility, that on the last day, when he comes again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen.